for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, uh, today wraps up our series in Daniel. Now, before we get to that, I need to start with just a little observation. I, uh, uh, one of the things that really puzzled me about marriage when I first got married to my wife was uh, something she did with movies when they became a little bit tense. Right, I remember one time when I was sitting with my wife, we were watching this movie, and uh, we were about 15 minutes into it, and the conflict had risen, right? You know, like... The tension's there, like, what's going to happen? And then I, I'm kind of sitting there, and my wife gets up, don't go work, watch this home. She gets up, and she goes over, and she fast-forwards the movie to the very last scene. I'm thinking, like, what is she doing? She watches the last scene, and then rewinds the movie all the way back to where we were just a few minutes before, right? I thought, this is kind of odd. Then I learned that it's not just movies that she does this with. She does this with books, too. She get to chapter two or three, and like the tension's rising, and then, well, she just flips to the last chapter, reads the last couple pages of the book, and then goes back to read. I finally asked her about this. She said, well, I have to know that the story's going to turn out okay in order to keep watching it, right? I see some nodding heads. How many of you do this? Come on, just own it. Is this some of you all out there? Okay. Surprisingly, I found a study out of University of California, San Diego, that found that as many as 40% of Americans at one point or another have done this very thing. I thought, no, nobody clued me in on this. I thought, how much easier it would have been for me watching Sleeping Beauty to know that the prince was going to show up. <laughs> like, it just would have been a more pleasurable experience. I wouldn't have lived with that tension. Is he going to come or not? But kind of funny to think about that. You know, the truth is that knowing how the story ends changes how we experience the story. Knowing how the story ends changes how we experience the story. Think about this for a minute. Y'all remember that movie Sixth, Sixth Sense? You remember that movie, right? Can you imagine if you had known the ending of that when you started watching that? Spoiler alert, he sees dead people. Okay, like, uh, anyway, all right. So, but just think about it. Knowing the end of the story changes how we experience that story. Uh, we come today to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, and I think something like that is what Daniel is up to at this point. Uh, in many ways, chapter 7 is, is the summary. It's the heart of the book of Daniel, and everything's going to pivot on it. For the first six chapters, he's been telling his story. We've been learning about his life but in chapter 7, we're going to get an intimate look into Daniel's diary. In fact, what he's going to share with us is actually a dream that he has. A pretty scary dream. We might call it a nightmare. And it's found right there at the beginning of chapter 7. Let me read this to you. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I'm going to read it in its entirety. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bible if you like. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of ours as a gift. Let me read this to you. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the, the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. 
The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me, a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, because it did not know how to floss. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, and I, I looked, and there before me was yet a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from the, all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, the little one, scarier than all the others, which came up among them. And the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Then as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, the perfect human, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, one who existed before days did, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And you thought you had crazy dreams, right? <laughs> this is a little nutty, isn't it? I mean, what do we, what do, we do with this? I don't know about you, but when I come to passages like this in the Bible, I, I mean, I'm a pastor, and when I come to passages like this, sometimes I'm like, can I just skip this and go to the next chapter, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with all this? Does, does this ancient language and imagery actually have something to teach me today in the 21st century? Well, what I want to suggest to us today is that it does. But we have to understand what the Bible is trying to do here. You see, this kind of writing is actually uh, an ancient form of writing common in the ancient world known as apocalyptic writing or apocalyptic literature. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, the word apocalypse, when I say that, some of y'all think of like the, the latest blockbuster movie that's an apocalypse, right? The end of the world, a meteor's coming, I don't know, alien, something like that, right? That's what we think of. Actually, the word apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal, to show. 
We see this kind of writing in the book of Revelation. You might know the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It was written by John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. In fact, in its original form, it's called the Apocalypse of John, the revealing of John, the revelation of John. We see it in Ezekiel. We see this kind of literature right here in Daniel chapter 7. So what are we supposed to do with this kind of stuff? How how are we to be faithful Bible readers when it comes to apocalyptic writings in the Bible? That's what I want to spend just a few minutes. We're not going to go long. Just a few minutes on this topic. And then I'm going to suggest what I think Daniel is trying to get across to us through this chapter. So for the note takers, four things I'm going to give you, four keys to reading this kind of writing in the Bible. Uh, First thing is this. First thing we have to do if we want to be faithful Bible readers of apocalyptic writing is that we have to pay attention to the symbolism. To pay attention to the symbolism. Uh, One thing to remember about apocalyptic writing is that it is highly symbolic. This is a great example, right? It's just filled. It's chock full of symbols. And these images are symbols that represent something else. They stand for something else. Now, there are two reasons that the writers like Daniel would have used this style of writing. And the first is kind of interesting. I want you to think about this. The first is they used it for their own protection. Right? In, the, in Daniel's time, we have to remember, Daniel was a prisoner of war. He had been hijacked from his hometown, 900 miles taken away, living uh, in a foreign land, uh, he is a slave of the court. He is not free to leave. This is, he, he is uh, oppressed. He's mistreated. And to speak ill of the king would be to risk his own life, right? So what does Daniel and his friends do? Well, they use a kind of symbolic code language. You might think of it like this, you techies. It's kind of like an ancient form of encryption, right? That's what Daniel's up to here. I was thinking about a modern version of how we, we do We do this with email, but I remember doing this in elementary school. You remember in elementary school when you had a crush on that guy or that girl and you were going to write a note and pass it to your friend, but you had to write it in code so that in case that girl or boy intercepted the note, they wouldn't know what you're talking about, right? So I'm the only one who did this in elementary school. <laughs> or worse, the teacher would get it. Remember, if you're a teacher, what do you do when you intercept a note? You read it aloud to the whole class, right? It better be encoded at that point. So, so they did this in the ancient world. Uh, in, in cultures where they were, God's people were oppressed, they used this kind of language as a form of protection. But there's a second reason that they use symbolism. I think this is actually more fascinating and more important for our purposes today. Symbolism was used by Daniel and others to evoke emotion, to make their readers feel the intensity of what they were talking about. Think about this from an ancient world. No special effects, right? No computer graphics. You can't call up John Williams to write you a score for Jaws. Like I just do that and you start to feel anxious, right? He didn't have any of these tools. The only tools Daniel had were words. And so he used his words. He used these symbols to, to convey, to evoke, to stir up emotion because the stuff that Daniel was writing about was terrifying. So let me ask you, when I read that story before, and I was kind of reading it kind of playfully, right? But when I read that story before, what kind of emotions did it stir for you? Did you feel any sense of the fear that Daniel felt? I mean, these are terrible 
things, terrible kings. When we read apocalyptic literature, we need to first pay attention, special attention, to the symbolism and the emotions that they stir. Now, the second thing we need to do if we're going to be faithful Bible readers is this. We, we need to not forget the original audience. Not forget the original audience. One of the most important things in any Bible passage is to keep in mind how its original hearers would have heard it. And while we might get stuck on some of these images, uh, we might be like, what's the deal with the ten horns and then three of them and then there's one that's got a mouth and eyes? Like, that's, that's creepier than Veggie Tales, right? I mean, that's just like... Y'all, talking cucumbers is scary, okay? I mean, I'm just saying, that's like... Okay, I thought I was the only one. You see, Daniel's audience would have known exactly what he was talking about, right? These symbols were not lost on Daniel's audience. They were familiar with every last detail. Now, let me prove this point to you because you actually experience the same thing. You just don't know it. Let me give you some symbols from our day. Imagine if I was to tell you this tale. This march, an epic battle will take place. And much of the world will suffer from a kind of madness. A great red wolf will rise up victorious. <laughs> only to be countered by a blue ram with shiny golden horns. But then, at last, in the days of the final four, a great bear from the west will rise up and emerge victorious. Okay, not because UCLA is terrible. But anyway, you get the idea, right? You see, none of these symbols are lost on you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And it was the same for Daniel and his audience. Daniel's audience knew the code. They knew what he was talking about, and it scared them to death. So who's the lion? Well, it's the first king Daniel worked for. It's Nebuchadnezzar, right? Oh, see, you guys are way better than 9 a.m. All right, uh, or, or the bear, that's, that's Belshazzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Then the leopard is the four-headed leopard. Those are the four Persian kings, Darius, Cyrus, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. And then this little horn, this kind of braggart little horn, is a guy named Antiochus IV. This guy was a Greek ruler that, uh, well, he kind of had been beaten down by all the other rulers around him. So like a bully, he took all of his anger and humiliation and he took it out on God's people. He's the one who, who desolated the temple, sacrificing unclean things on God's altar. He was horrific. One of the important things to remember in Daniel is that the book of Daniel, while it is written for us, it is not written to us. Let me say that again. The book of Daniel is written for us as believers, as Jesus followers, or as spiritual inquirers. There are things that we can learn about God and his ways and his people from this book. But Daniel was not written to you and me as its primary audience. The primary audience was God's people under oppression from these horrific, beastly, blasphemous kings. So, Knowing that it's not written to us, but written for us, what's our next step? Well, the next thing that we need to do in our day and age today is, is don't overanalyze the symbols. Don't overanalyze the symbols. We need to study, right? Even though it's good, it's good for us to study. It's good for us to look at the historicals, try and figure out what Daniel's talking about here. But we need to not lose ourselves in details that we can't figure out. 
What creature did the author envision? How many parts did it have? Which parts are identified? Many of the details of these things, they have meaning, but just because we don't know the exact meaning of every detail doesn't mean we can't understand the big picture. There's a risk that can happen here. And uh, it's so funny, I did a little bit of Googling on this, like what do people think these symbols represent? And y'all, I mean, there is no shortage of suggestions about what these various beasts represent, right? And, and the problem here is we, we can kind of take these symbols because they're so kind of mythical and vague, and we can kind of make them into anything we want. And that's the risk that we run when we take it out of its original audience and we overemphasize the symbols. We lose the big picture. We lose the forest for the trees when we overemphasize it. Well, this leads to our fourth and final thing, which is really the crux of how we are to read apocalyptic writings in the scriptures. We need to be thinking about the writer's purpose. Why is Daniel writing this dream for his audience? See, Daniel had spent his entire life, his entire life, living under oppression. And just when it seemed like things were going to be going his way, it would be yanked right out from under him again. Brent talked about this last week, just over and over and over again. This endless, this ceaseless kind of suffering, the oppression, the mistreatment, the violence, the injustice. I mean, the same team keeps going to the Super Bowl year after year. It just seems like the suffering is never going to end. But then Daniel... At the, end of, at the end of his life, he, he writes this dream. And look, look at this phrase from verse 11. He says this, he says, but then I kept watching. Daniel's going to watch this movie all the way to the end. Because knowing the end can make all the difference. Daniel wants us to read the last chapter. Daniel wants us to know how the story ends so that we will know how to live in this story. Look at what he says in these final verses. Then I kept watching until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And there before me was one like a son of man, like a perfect human being, coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel says, look, I know it's dark. I know it seems hopeless. I know it feels like it will never stop, but I want you to know this. I want you to know this. I have seen the last chapter. We know how the story ends. We know that God wins. We know how the story ends, and we know that God wins. In the battle against evil, God will win. In the battle against oppression, God will win. In the battle against sickness and sin and even death, we know how the story ends. We know that God will win. So, my friends, Daniel says, so, 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 do not give up. We know how the story ends. We've seen it. We've seen it. God wins. 
You know, it's kind of interesting. It's about 500 years later when a man named Jesus would pick up this very same idea that Daniel is communicating in chapter 7. Only Jesus said it like this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Oh, you will. I promise. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But I know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. We know that God wins. I have overcome the world. And of course, this is what the gospel is all about. Jesus, the son of man that Daniel was pointing to 500 years earlier, would come and walk amongst us and live life with us, die our death and be resurrected. And he has been given all authority and all honor. And one day, one day we are promised Jesus will return to judge every evil, to right every wrong, to wipe every tear and to heal every wound. That's his promise. We know the end of the story. We know that God wins. And that, my friend, is good news. So where does Daniel's story intersect your story this morning? You probably aren't living as a slave laborer in the king of an evil emperor. But chances are you're facing some challenges some obstacles, some hardships that just seem to never go away. Just when it seems like there's hope, you, you lose ground all over again. It feels like you're back at ground zero. What might it mean for you today to know, to know, to know, to know that God will overcome even that obstacle? That you know the end of the story, that he wins. What difference might that make in your life? What hope might that bring to your relationships, to your family? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Can we pray together?